So 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, that's where we're going to be focusing on. I'll be concluding our series on uh, House of Prayer this morning. So we'll be focusing on 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be focusing on verses 1 through 7. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And it's read like this. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let's pray. Father, well, we come in this moment just recognizing your presence, that you are here in this moment. We just pray that as we have been singing to you, singing about your goodness, singing that Christ be magnified, we pray that Christ be magnified in our hearts this morning. We pray that as we sang those songs, Lord, that it has softened our hearts and our minds to be receptive to your word this morning. So I pray, Lord, that your word, as it goes out, that you would accomplish all that you want it to do, that your word will land on fertile ground so that it may bear fruit. Father, as we are challenged this morning with, with, with a specific focus on praying for the lost, God, I know that we can feel guilty that this is probably an area that we don't pray for enough. So I pray, Lord, that we would sense that, that if we are in Jesus, that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, that where we have failed, Jesus obeyed perfectly. I pray that we would rest in that truth, but nevertheless, Lord, that we would be challenged and encouraged to continue to pray for those who are spiritually lost. Uh, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So for the past couple of weeks, we have been in a series titled House of Prayer. And the title of this series comes from Matthew 21, 13, where Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah to the religious leaders, and he says to them, it is written that my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Uh, I, 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 me, personally, I like the way the King James said it, that you have made it into a den of thieves. Um, essentially, that, you know, that God's house is to be a house of prayer. God's desire is that his house will be a house of prayer, that his people will be known as people of prayer. And as you think about this series, I, I want you to think about it for the past couple of weeks as a concentric circle. The first week, we, we focused on ourselves. That's that inner part of the circle. We focused on James chapter 5 and prayer when, when you are going through sufferings or when things are going good and you're praising God or, or maybe you are sick and you need to call church leadership to anoint you with oil so that you can pray for, for healing. And maybe that, that sickness is related to sin and he encourages to confess that sin as well and also to pray for one another. And last week, week two, it began to stretch outward. As we began to, to think about for the mission of the local church, for the mission of the kingdom of God, praying to the Lord of the harvest so that he may raise up laborers because the harvest is plentiful, 
but the laborers are few. The needs are great, so we are to pray with the perspective and heart of Jesus so that we may see the power of Jesus as he raised up laborers to go into the harvest. And today we are going to include in the, the outer part of a concentric circle, which is praying outward, praying for the lost, praying for the people who don't know Jesus. And as we think about this today, it's helpful, it's helpful for you to ask yourself, what would the world look like if God were to answer all of your prayers? What would cities look like? Would your own personal life look better, but lives are still in shambles? Or would the city of Raleigh be transformed? Would this world be transformed as a result if God really answered the things that you are truly praying for? So here's the big idea, the, the main point I want us to see from our passage today. We must pray for all people because Jesus died for all people. We must pray for all people because Jesus died for all people. And in this idea, we're going to see four reasons as how and what we should be praying for as individuals, but also as a collective body, as a church. Now, to give you some context on this passage, in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, Paul lays out a gospel foundation. Chapter 1, he, 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 he encourages and exhorts Timothy to guard the gospel. In the middle of chapter 1, he begins to tell Timothy to, to celebrate the gospel through, the, uh, through transformed lives. And at the end of chapter 1, he tells Timothy to essentially fight for the gospel. And as Paul now transitions uh, based on that gospel foundation, Paul begins to give some practical instructions, some practical exhortations to the local church. We know that the context of this is the local church because it begins with, first of all, first of all, um, and in verse 8, he says, I desire that in every place men should pray, continuing from verse 1, this desire to pray. And then at the end of chapter 3, verse 15, he tells us, I am writing these things to you so that you may know how to behave in the household of God, which is the pillar of the living God. So he, in this section, he's talking about practical instructions of how we ought to live as a body within the context of a local church. And in this text, we're going to see four reasons on what and how the local church should be praying for lost people. So number one, we are commanded to pray for all people. Look at verse one. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So those opening words, first of all, it, it, it is to point out the, 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 prom, the prominence, the importance of this initial exhortation. It, as we begin to see in chapters 2 and 3, Paul talks about prayer, uh, that men should be praying, that, they should, that men should lift up their hands in the local church. And before he, he gets to men praying, before he talks about the roles of men and women in the church, before he gets to uh, the roles of elders and deacons in the local church, he says, first of all then, I urge you to pray. I want you to be a people of prayer. I want my church, my people to be a house of prayer. And notice that the Apostle Paul says, I urge this is a command in the form of a request. It's almost like he's a, he's a parent. You ever, I don't know about you, my mom used to give me a command in a form of a question, and I was like, are, are you asking me or are you telling me? 
And, and Paul is here. He's like, I'm asking you, but I'm really telling you what you need to be doing. This is a command in the form of a request. He urges, he's pleading that supplications, that prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. He's pointing out that it is our responsibility as not only as individuals in our private prayer time, but also when we gather as a local church that we pray for all types of people. Supplications means asking God for the things people need. Intercessions has the idea of praying fervently on someone else's behalf. Prayers has the idea of general prayer or just worship. And thanksgiving is probably one of the hardest parts is telling God how thankful you are for these different types of people. When Paul says all people, he's, he's not saying that we need to pray for every single individual on the planet because that, that will be exhausted. We will never finish. You would wear yourself out. But he's talking about that we need to pray for all types of people, that we need to pray for different demographics, that our prayers are not to be so narrow, just focused on self, but like a concentric circle needs to continue to extend outward. Why does he say this? And it's because this type of prayer is vital and health for the local church. Notice he says to pray for them, not against them. Because oftentimes the church in our day is often known for what we are against than what we are for. And as a church that Paul is writing to, to, to Timothy, a church in Ephesus that is made of both Jew and Gentile, live, doing life together, he's telling them that they need to pray for one another. He says this because there were false teachers who were creeping in and teaching that they just need to limit their prayers because salvation was limited to a small group of the religious elite, uh, to use modern-day terminology, uh, to people who are woke, people who have this special knowledge to the, to the Gnostics of his day who, who kept saying that, oh, if you don't have this special knowledge, then you are not really saved. And Paul is like, mm -mm. no, prayer for all people. Prayer is not an elitist. It's not supposed to be nationalistic, not supposed to be racist or selective practice. Paul says there's no category of person that you should not pray for. May there be diversity in our praying. Listen to what John Piper says about this. Do not let your prayers be limited to any one group of people or kind of people. Enlarge the circumference of your love. Do not be provincial, sectarian, nationalistic, elitist, or racist in your prayers. Let your prayers embrace all kinds of people, high and low, white and black, Democrat and Republican, Enlarge your heart until it embraces the world. Go to the school of Calvary until you can hate the bigotry and racism of the Ku Klux Klan and the neo-Nazis, but can pray with a yearning love in your hearts for these men and women. And let me tell you this. It's hard to be antagonistic or say insensitive things about people and demonize them when you're really genuinely praying for them. This means that we should be praying for the people of the LGBTQ community, that we should be praying for dif different ethnic groups, that we should be praying for the rich and the poor, for the sick and the healthy, 
for singles and married and divorced individuals, for widows, for orphans, that we are to pray for those who are involved in gangs and in prostitutions and drug addiction, that we are to pray for everyone because we are commanded to pray for all people. So we should pray for all people. But number two, we are also to pray for gospel-friendly context. Look back into the passage again. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So within the broader kinds of people that we should be praying for, Paul transitions to some specificity that the church at Ephesus needs to be praying for. And he says, for kings and all who are in high positions, for those who are in authority. Now, it's fascinating as you consider this command, because Paul is writing under the reign of Nero, a Roman emperor who violently persecuted Christians. And at that time, there would have been few, if any, Christian leaders in the world. Yet Paul was telling them that they need to pray for these pagan leaders. Pray for the king you suffer under. Pray for the leader that you don't agree with. Pray for the ruler that you don't approve of. This is significant because the the early church suffered under wicked pagan rulers. As you think about Nero, during this time, Nero is the same ruler who, who authorized to give a boy a sex change and then publicly married him. On another time, Nero dressed himself as a bride and married someone, uh, married a man publicly. He viciously persecuted Christians. For example, of this persecutions, when, when Christians were, were thrown to Nero, Nero ordered uh, his soldiers to dip these Christians in oil and then to light them on fire as a form of entertainment so they can serve as light posts in Rome. And this is the person and the type of individual that Paul says we need to pray for. So when Paul says pray for all type of people, he's including kings and those who are in high positions. He's not naive. He's not, he's aware that he's making a radical statement. This is radical. This is worse than saying, well, I disagree with his policies. This is like, no, this person's out to kill you. And yet you're supposed to pray for him and for their greater good. Because we are to pray for these people. Listen to what Jesus has to say on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may, son, so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. This love, this prayer that includes praying for kings, for people who are in high positions. That, that's, we're supposed to have a genuine love that's, that's hard, that's, that's difficult. And why do we do this? Paul says so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's what I mean when I say that we need to pray for gospel-friendly context, that the praying for those who are in authority is so that the gospel can flourish so that we can have a context that we can share the gospel with our neighbor free from persecution. To the Christians with a Jewish background, Paul's command should not have sounded foreign, although they they may have 
took this as like, Paul, you're crazy. But this is the same application that the prophet Jeremiah told the Israelites when they were going out to exile in Jeremiah 29, 7, where he says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find its welfare. Paul's instructions have paramount relevance for us today in a polarized culture where people are very loud about their political uh, opinions or persuasions, whether it's on social media or on, the, or on television. So if you're a Christian here in America, this is a command that you ought to pray for President Joe Biden, regardless of what you think about his politics or policies. You are commanded to love him and to pray for him, not to mimic him and share memes of him falling off a bicycle. You're supposed to genuinely pray for him. Then I've been guilty of that too. I'll sit there and laugh and then I'll be convicted about it because the scriptures say that we need to pray for our leaders. You are to pray for Vice President Kamala Harris. You are to pray for uh, Governor Roy Cooper and Mar Mayor Marianne Baldwin, regardless of their policies, regardless of their political stances. We are to pray for them so that they can actually push policies that are gospel-friendly. But we should also pray for leaders of countries like in China, leaders in Russia, leaders in Afghanistan, where Christianity is illegal, where people do not have the freedom to share the, the glorious gospel with their, neighbor, with their neighbors. The Bible tells us to pray for those in authority. So are you praying for these individuals? Or are you watching the news and just getting frustrated and angry with them? Paul told the Christians in Ephesus to pray for them so that it may benefit them, so that they can be in a better position to share the gospel. Prayer is essential to our health as Christians and as a church, and if we have seen, we should pray for all people and we should pray for gospel-friendly context. But number three, we should also pray for the salvation of all people. Look at verses three and four. For this is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. <clears throat> so keeping with this theme of prayer, Paul says that this type of prayer is good, that this type of prayer is pleasing to God, our Savior. That as much as we want to pray for gospel-friendly context, it's even better that we pray that God would genuinely save those who are in a position of power. That, th that God will save those who are in a position to actually influence change. It's also interesting that Paul refers to God here as our God and Savior. And it is because it is God's very nature to save. If you look, take a, a look through the Old Testament, you see that time and time again, God the Father steps in to save Israel when they don't deserve it. That, they, that the, even though... They and we have chosen sin and we have made a mess of our lives and have willingly believed the lies of the devil rather than the truth of God's word. And although we may deserve damnation, it's God's desire that all people be saved, that all people be saved through a knowledge of the truth. And it is because God's desire for all people to receive salvation, you should desire all people to receive salvation even that individual that you don't like. 
So when you begin to pray for all kinds of people in the world to be saved, Jews and Gentiles, friends and families, Democrats and Republicans, reached and unreached people groups, your heart is coming in line with the heart of God himself. He desires their salvation because these are the people that he has made in his image. Now, some caveats. What this does not mean is that all people will be saved. Some people have used this passage to argue for universalism, the, the argument that, that because Jesus died, that every single individual is not going to go to hell, but go to heaven. And the reasoning goes like this. Because God desires all people to be saved, and God always gets what he desires, then all people will be saved. But that's not what this passage or the Bible as a whole teaches. Scripture is clear that we are only saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And only those who place their trust in Christ will receive eternal life. In addition, this does not mean that God's will will be thwarted. Some people have also made, on the flip side, the argument that God is not sovereign. That if God desires all people to be saved and not all people are saved, then ultimately God is not in control of everything in the world. But this is clearly not true. Scripture also is clearly it is clear that God is sovereign over all things. We covered that a couple of weeks ago. But what this text does mean is that God loves all people, and he desires their salvation. That's why it says in other passages like 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. As much as we want Jesus to come right now, there is an element that we do want him to be patient because we may have friends and family members who don't know Jesus, and we say, hold up, Jesus. Can you extend that window so that my friend or family member can come to salvation? And while salvation ultimately comes, it belongs to God, even our prayers are his work in us because God has chosen to use our prayers to accomplish his will. So we ought to pray for our lost friends and family members. We are to pray for our neighbors. We are to pray for our enemies. We are to pray for people who are hostile to the gospel. We are to pray knowingly that God loves them and desires that they come to salvation. Because we are in a life-saving mission. The Bible is telling us as his representatives, as his ambassadors, and in this text, he's urging us to pray that people come to know Jesus. God-pleasing prayer means we pray for everyone, that we pray for those in authority, that we pray for those who are suffering persecution, that we pray for those people who don't like us, that you pray for those that you disagree with, and that we pray for those who are spiritually lost. God-pleasing prayer means that we ultimately pray for their salvation because God desires all people to be saved. And lastly, number four, we, we need to pray because Jesus died to redeem all people. Look at, look at verses 5 through 7. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 
And continuing with the theme of God's desire to save all people, this saving comes through the knowledge of the truth. And what is the truth? Paul says that the truth is laid out that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The reason why this is the truth, because this is the reality. Sin separates humanity from God, and we need a mediator to end that separation. The word used here for mediator does not mean what we think it means in contemporary English. Jesus was not a, a mediator in the sense that he worked for one uh, in between two parties to come to a compromise. Instead, he was the only one who was able to go between God and humanity to enable them to have a relationship, but entirely on God's terms. Jesus is uniquely qualified to reconcile you because he is 100% human, but he is also 100% God. Theologians call this the hypostatic union. This is, it's hard to understand that Jesus was both 100% God, but at the same time, 100% human. And I'm not sure what tradition you were raised in, but the Bible teaches as in this text that there is one mediator between God and man, and it's Jesus. And although we may uh, respect Mary, she was a vessel that was used by God to bring the Messiah, we are not to pray to Mary. Mary is not mediating on our behalf. Jesus is. The Pope is not a mediator. Priests are not the mediator. Pastors are not the mediator. Going to church is not the mediator. The only thing that can mediate us between God is only in and through Jesus. It is only in and through Jesus Christ that you can be in right relationship with God. And Jesus did this by giving himself as a ransom. Now, ransom, although it's a name, um, it's also a word that has slavery connotations. Giving a ransom refers to an outside party paying the price to free a slave once and for all. And slavery is an institution that has been around for thousands of years. The Jews were familiar with it, suffering 400 years of slavery under Egypt. African Americans and other African people of the diaspora are familiar with this since it lasted in America and other countries for over 200 years. And when you enslave another human being, you treat them as less than human. You treat them like an animal. You tell them to call you master. And even though they're fully grown adults, you tell them when they go to sleep, when to wake up, when they can eat, when to work, how to think. And if they don't obey, you beat them. You destroy their freedom and leave them in a place of hopelessness. And when it says that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, it means that without Jesus, whether you realize it or not, you were a slave. You were a slave to something far worse than human slavery. You were a slave to sin. And if you, don't, if you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, this is your current state. John 8.34, Jesus says that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. You're a slave to Satan, you're a slave to sin, and you're a slave to suffering. But because Jesus gave his life as a ransom for all, he can say, he could also say that he who, son, he who, 
He who the Son sets free is free indeed. You can be free from the lies of the devil. You can be free from the destruction of sin. And you can be free from all suffering in heaven. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. That's why Paul says that this is why he was appointed an apostle. When he says that he was an appointed an apostle and a preacher uh, of God's truth and he's not lying, um, he's just saying that he, this is the major reason that he's called to this. And this is not just Paul's calling now. This is our calling as a local church. God has called his church to proclaim this message that Jesus died to redeem all people. That we are on a life mission to declare that Jesus died to save sinners and to set the captives free. So maybe you are here today. And you need to grow in this area of praying for the lost. Maybe even just growing in the area of praying for your political authorities. And you don't even know where to start. One of the things that has helped me in this area is using a prayer list. There's a, there's a picture on the back, um, a list that is built around this idea of concentric circles, uh, where it first starts with worship, confession, thanksgiving, and then moves into our spiritual and physical needs, and then moves outwardly with a different focus each day. And the one that has helped my wife and I is Kenneth Boa's handbook to prayer, praying scripture back to God. If you don't have it, I highly encourage you to get it. Um, I have it digitally. If you're, if you're like me and you like digital books, I can send you a, the, the Kindle version. If you are more old school and you like physical uh, uh, print, uh, you can find it on eBay, you can find it on Amazon, um, I really like it because it goes through three months of different passages with different areas of scripture and how we should pray not only for world and current events, but also praying for people who are, going, who are marginalized, people that we would forget to pray for like orphans and widows. And also tells you of how you can even be praying for yourself using scripture as the basis of how you can grow in loving Jesus more and how you can love your neighbor as yourself because you know, I'm all for spontaneous prayers. I'm all for when an ambulance passes by that you stop and pray in that moment when you see someone suffering. I'm all for that. But sometimes we need structure. Sometimes we need something to tell us every day, like, okay, you know, you may feel guilty that you don't pray for the lost enough, but there is grace when you just pray for the lost once a week. Like when you just pray for your family once a week, when you just pray for your church once a week, where you just, you know, like, you know, it can feel very burdensome, like, man, there are so many needs personally in the life of my church and in the world that it can feel overwhelming that you don't know where even to start. So this is just one wonderful tool I just want to put before you that can help you just praying for these different areas that we've been trying to cover these past few weeks in this series of House of Prayer. So as you think about this passage and what we've been talking about today, who is God bringing to your mind? Who is it that God is calling you to pray for? Maybe it's a specific person, or maybe it's a, a specific group of people that you've been antagonistic toward. Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray that they come to know Jesus so that they may experience the life-transforming, joy-filled, liberating love of Jesus Christ. And before I pray, I just want to take 
Just take one minute where you are right now to pray for those individuals right now.